Do we need younger presidential candidates? Did slavery create capitalism? And does Major League Baseball want to destroy itself? We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by Dan Baseball Crank McLaughlin, the Dominator, Dominic Pino, and the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is The Bonson Group. More about them. In due course, if for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, we have the Nikki Haley uh, uh, announcement uh, under our belts here, and her first campaign swing has started. When we talked earlier on Tuesday, we just seen her campaign video, which put an emphasis the same way Sarah Huckabee Huckabee Sanders did in her State of the Union response on youth and the need for a new generation. And she really hung a lantern on this with her first campaign event where she said she wants to see competency tests for candidates over age 75. And lo and behold, just coincidentally, the Democrats she'd be running against if she got the nomination, likely, is uh, over age 75, and so is the front runner or co-front runner or whatever you want to call it in the Republican field as well. What do you make of it? Um, well, I think, the, I think the generational argument is a powerful one. Uh, I think one way of, of visibly turning the page on an, on an era is to pick someone younger, and that's what um, Americans did in 1960. Uh, and in 1992, and you know, those those candidacies of, of JFK and Bill Clinton relied on that, and I, I think it's not a bad idea for Nikki Haley to do the same. Um, we have so many people, so many leaders in both parties who are way over the hill. Um, boomers exercise an unbelievable influence over American life, even to this day. I mean, basically, from the time that they were in the crib until now they've been the leaders. They still have the majority share of wealth in this country, um, which they attained by the time they were on average 35 years old. Uh, so yeah, I think there's a huge, uh, draw for a generational campaign. She's not the only one that could run that on the Republican side. We may see that from Tim Scott or Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, in fact, it may become a theme on the Republican side. Um, what I think is another interesting theme in her run is she's, you know, lightly played up the fact that she's a woman and she's of um, Indian American stock, you know, neither black nor white, just different. Um, and she's not playing. She said she in her speech that she didn't want to play identity politics and wanted to get away from it. But in a way, like she's using her identity in a conservative jujitsu manner, mm -hmm. where um, conservative voters, many of them, uh, hate being hate living under the accusation that conservatism is just uh, the privilege of white people under a fancier name. Uh, they and they, there is a palpable, and there has been for a long time a palpable desire among conservative voters to vote for non-white champions, because in a sense, these candidates can prove that the charge is false and that in fact, 
the American creed is a universal one, um, right? That is not uh, just the preserve of the already privileged. Um, so I think that's a very powerful weapon in her arsenal too. Um, I'm a little bit concerned though, <laughs> which uh, is she did an appearance on Hannity in which Hannity asked about her policy. Dif- Does she have any policy differences from Donald Trump? And we all know what Donald Trump's kind of, well, we sort of know what Donald Trump's policy matrix is, you know, uh, and she refused to answer. She kind of totally ducked the question and then said she's running against Joe Biden. And it's like, well, that's just not going to cut it because right. he's already declared. And now you've declared you are running against Donald Trump. So why should people vote for you and not for him? And tell me in policy terms that that is a, a question she has to come up with an answer for. Yeah, that's kind of like the Ro- Roger Mudd uh, question to, to uh, Ted Kennedy or, or, or version of it. I think that what's been best about her campaign so far, you know, two days in or whatever, is the fire she's drawn from from the left for, for staking out this kind of in-between position. I'm not black or, or white. I'm, I'm different. And we're moving on. And th- this country's its ideals aren't uh, debased and they aren't racist. It drives them crazy. So she's getting the, the kind of Clarence Thomas treatment or kind of a, a, a maybe less vociferous version of the Thomas treatment where she's not a real Indian American because she uses Nikki. Never mind that this is her real middle name. And she's used it since birth. And it, it has uh, comes from Punjab, where her parents are are from, and she, you know, supposedly checked a, the white box on uh, some voter registration card more than 20 years ago, and she converted to Christianity, and and on and on, just this this highly personal stuff. Where at the end of the day, they just can't stand that she's not willing to um, pl- play the identity politics game as they think all good uh, uh, immigrants should. Um, Dan, put on your your historian's hat as you do so often and so compellingly. What are examples, I can't think of one recently, where if you get a good generational matchup going in a presidential race, the the younger, more dynamic candidate doesn't win. Would, I was maybe, was Mond, you know, and I'm not counting Mondale. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, just to, to continue one thought, um, you know, I mean, the point that, that you and Michael made about the racial angle here and, and the gender angle, you know, it's not just the conservative voters would like to disprove the charge. Um, and in fact, you know, if you look back to 2016, the non-white candidates in the Republican primary field uh, collectively got more votes than Trump did, you know, uh, obviously counting uh, Rubio and Cruz as non-white in that sense. Uh, You know, you add them together with Ben Carson's vote total. Um, But it is also the point that you've made, Rich, which is the, that I think conservative voters understand that if you run someone who is not a a white male, that the left will just go absolutely berserk in self-defeating ways. Um, I mean, historically, you know, historically, I mean, certainly the the younger candidate has not always won, um, but uh, when there has been that kind of generational thing on the table, and certainly, I mean, Clinton is the most obvious example. Um, you know, the the one that I wrote about not long ago, the eighteen fifty two election, uh, the Democrats had a big fight going into the convention because Stephen Douglas's 
sort of young America faction had, you know, newspaper men writing about old fogeyism. They were ranting against like sort of the Andrew Jackson generation because they had just run Lewis Cass, who was an older, uh, older candidate. Um, in in 1848, and he lost, uh, and they ended up nominating uh, Franklin Pierce, who was went on to become at the time the youngest president. Um, and you know he defeated Winfield Scott, who was sort of an old war horse. Um, although the p- pounding the generational table actually kind of backfired on the Douglas people because it 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 alienated Cass and his supporters. It alienated James Buchanan and his supporters, uh, and that created the opening for Pierce. And then of course Buchanan gets the last laugh and uh, you know defeats Pierce at the convention four years later. So um, there definitely have been have been some of these matchups in the past. Uh, and, you know, I think there is that hunger out there. I mean, in terms of the baby boomers, you know, before Obama, I believe the last president uh, to get elected who, according to the exit polls, at least lost voters over 30 um, was Jimmy Carter in 76. Well, who were the voters between the ages of 18 and 30 uh, in 1976? That's the, you know, the rising baby boom generation, obviously the the oldest uh, of the boomers uh, the 46 crowd was, was just turning 30 that year. Um, so that, that is a long tenure on the stage. I mean, one reason I think we are likely to see and hear a lot of that age, uh, is that it does serve this double purpose for Republicans, right? Because if you're a Republican in your forties or fifties, you know, or even, I mean, to a lesser extent, I guess somebody like Pence, but Pence doesn't kind of code as younger. He's just not as old as the old guys. Um, you know, it's a way of, of attacking Biden while also giving you a way to attack Trump that doesn't say, you know, I'm against the Trump presidency, I'm against the Trump personality, I'm against the Trump platform. It just says, come on, man, take the gold watch, you know, hand it over. All all that stuff would be so great if he was just 10 years younger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I mean, DeSantis, uh, you know, I mean, when, when Trump was on, uh, uh, you know, when Trump was on 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 national TV for his, national newspapers for his his first divorce, DeSantis was still playing little league baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the '90s, so there is a real generational argument there for Haley, uh, for DeSantis, for for Scott, um, and I think there's a generational dividend with the general electorate. Uh, that there are voters out there. There's a lot of voters out there who are just sick of all these old folks, um, and so, uh, you know, and that matters to younger voters. So spe- speaking of that, we we have a, a younger voter on this very podcast. So Dominic, please don't tell us that your slogan is "Never trust anyone over the age 25." <laughs> no, that is not that is not me. But um, uh, yeah, I, I do think that you're right about. Uh, uh, some Clarence Thomas treatment going on a little bit with Nikki Haley. Um, but I, the other parallel I was thinking was um, with uh, Margaret Thatcher, because, of course, uh, she played up her, uh, as you as you mentioned before, she played up her, her gender as well with that line about um, uh, kicking back uh, hurts more when you're wearing mm-hmm. high heels, um, which uh, if she continues and advances uh, in, into a to a debate with Joe Biden, um, Biden would have the chance to plagiarize Neil Kinnock again, so that would be fun. But uh, <laughs> the uh, generational problem is, I think, more significant than just old people uh, governing, because if we are consistently being governed by old people, 
at least it would be different people coming in because generations advance uh, in age just like people do. But uh, what we've seen is actually, uh, you know, if you look at Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Donald Trump were all born in the summer of 1946. And so we have been governed by people Mm -hmm. uh, who were born in the summer of 1946 uh, for a huge portion of the last uh, few decades. And um, and uh, uh, Joe Biden, of course, was born in, in 1942, so he's even older. Um, Bill Clinton, when he took office, of course, wasn't unusually old, but uh, there is this sort of uh, that we've stuck with this generation for such a long time. It, it, it's definitely time for some new leadership, and, and I do think that it's a, it's a one aspect of a case that can be made to voters in a compelling way. And um, let's see if uh, if Haley and DeSantis and others will be able to do it. So, MBD, we, we had a very sad example uh, this week. What happens when someone stays too long? Diane Feinstein uh, announced that she's not going to run again. But the announcement, I mean, I'm sure she n- knew about it, but apparently she forgot about it. So the statement went out, and then she's asked by a reporter about it. And she's like, uh, no, I, I, there's no statement. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not saying anything. Maybe I will at some point. And her staff said, no, no actually, um, uh, Senator, we, we, we did put out the announcement. And this has been an open secret in Washington. Democrats have obviously been very concerned about it. No one could stop her, you know, in, in 18. So she uh, runs and, and wins again, even though everyone knows it's going to be a train wreck. And that's... Um, uh, you know, let's hope we, we never get to this this point with uh, with Joe Biden or anyone else in the in the White House. But it has to be a, a concern. Yeah, I mean, listen. I mean, there's another story this week about Feinstein that um, she was caught on camera asking her own aides whether she voted for a piece of legislation or not, mm-hmm. and they had to inform her that no, she hadn't. Yeah, um, and I think she she didn't know what a continuing resolution was anymore, or something like that. <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's sad, and it, it, listen, I mean, it's it's a fact of life <laughs> that uh, at the very end we we lose a step, and it's it's the ultimate humbling before the great humiliation of death itself, and um, uh, you know, but California has been deprived of a thinking, uh, you know, acute senator by Dianne Feinstein remaining in the seat as long as she has. Um, and yeah, the, it's a serious problem with the gerontocracy. I think, you know, we are not, this is something that used to be not as serious because people died of other causes before senility or Alzheimer's set in, in previous generations. Um, and now you're seeing all sorts of institutions struggle with this. I mean, the the Catholic Church, obviously, being one of the major ones where we, we had the spectacle of a pope retiring for fear of contracting uh, Alzheimer's or um, Parkinson's or some other disease that would affect their mental acuity and ability to govern. And so I'm not surprised <coughs> that in America we're having you know, candidates now broach the uncomfortable subject of, you know, either mental tests for the aged or maybe even, you know, age limits uh, on the elderly holding high office. I think we're going to see more of it in the future. 
So, Dan, exit question to you about the Republican 2024 race. Someone tweeted the other day, you know, the first question at the first Republican debate should be, did Donald Trump win in 2020 or not? And I think depending on the moderator, there's a pretty good chance that will be the first question at a Republican debate. What do you think the average Republican answer uh, obviously, candidates who aren't Trump, what, what the kind of their average answer would be. Now, obviously, there's going to be, you know, a, a spectrum there. If Chris Christie's on the stage, you know, we know what we're going to get from from him and from some others. But it's just sort of the standard. What do you think basic standard Republican line will be when that comes up? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that, that the candidates who are really serious about winning um, are going to probably want to duck that question as much as they can. Um, I can see the, you know, of course, the standard, well, Biden's president, isn't he? Um, you know, I think we know generally what DeSantis's answer is because he's talked about a lot about election reform and stuff. And he just basically, you know, his focus is, well, look, we saw a lot of this funny business coming in uh, 2020 and we made sure it didn't happen in Florida, uh, which is a way of sort of implying uh, that it did happen nationally without saying it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think a lot of them are not going to want to be pinned down on this if they can help it. And certainly if the moderator is somebody who is hostile to the Republican Party, they will press the issue and make it a number one. I don't know that they can avoid it, though. I mean, because you can't, I mean, you know, it's sort of the proverbial elephant in the room and, and Trump is the elephant and he's right there. So, yeah, so uh, if the moderator know. doesn't press the issue, you know, Trump might. Dominic. Um, yeah, I mean, the, it's it's going to be an issue that he's going to have to deal with, and um, and candidates should make the case. I, I think uh, uh, there's there's going to be, uh, you know, there 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 could be a pretty big field. Um, Republicans have a strong bench. They um, there's lots of leaders out there in the states that uh, are looking to possibly make a bigger name for themselves, and um, a lot of them are not going to be really really old. Fortunately, we are seeing this uh, turnover in congressional leadership, though. Uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy is not uh, too old. He's no young gun anymore, but he's not uh, he's not he's not exceptionally old. And uh, Democrats uh, passed over Steny Hoyer, who was next in line uh, after Nancy Pelosi and went with Hakeem Jeffries, who's much younger. Um, so and, you know, if you look on the Senate side, the next in line for Republicans, uh, whenever Mitch McConnell decides to quit, will probably be John Thune, who's. Uh, younger. So um, I, I do see uh, a brighter uh, future for this, uh, at least in the congressional side. MBD, so what, what do you think the, the standard answer will be to the, it, was Trump cheated? Did he win in 2020 question? I think it'll be the uh, Molly Hemingway, Tucker Carlson version of it, which is... It was unfair. It was an unfair election. He lost it, but it was an unfair election that... Um, the collusion between social media and intelligence agencies, deep, maybe even, you know, the harder core person will say deep state, throw that, that term in there, uh, worked to deprive, uh, the American people of all the information and a, and a fair choice. Um, and maybe, you know, some shots at the media too, for being unfair and not interrogating, uh, Joe Biden more, you know, and it could be even worse if, if there's a uh, more health stuff with Joe Biden between now and then, which I'm sure there will be, um, you know, people will Republicans will also blame the media for not 
pressing him on his basement campaign in 2020 as well. Uh, so yeah, unfair, but not rigged. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think there'll be bonus points if per um, uh, re what Dan was saying, if you can s- sort of take shots at Trump for, for being cheated or let it happen to him. Um, so with that, let's hear from our sponsor of this episode, the Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day. Led by our own David Bonson, the Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed. In a bear market, their deep commitment to dividend growth investing to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's indexed investing insanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. Please check it out. So, Dan, something you've been checking out is this Hulu series. It wasn't enough to have the 6019 Project in the pages of the New York Times. It wasn't enough to have a book, a children's book, have uh, you know school systems around the country saying we're going to start teaching this stuff. You definitely had to have a Hulu a streaming uh, documentary version. I have uh, only uh, dipped in uh, to episode four. You watched, which is about capitalism. We'll talk about that in a little bit in a second. You watched uh, episode one, maybe more, but wrote about episode one, which is about the, the nation's founding, where she just, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, just doubles down on this obviously fallacious reading of the revolution. It was, um, you know, a, a very small bit of her original essay in the New York Times, but a key bit and a key flaw that was uh, picked at such that the New York Times had to kind of stealthily kind of sort of uh, walk it back. And then she, she did what uh, journalists who were caught out in a mistake often do, which is, I'm not correcting this, I'm going to go find something to try to justify it. And, you know, she has a, a couple uh, historians who who play ball with her uh, on this, but but all the all the big authoritative voices uh, say it's it's nonsense. What say you? It is nonsense. And, and it really is, uh, it, it really is, uh, you know, something that is demonstrably uh, a bad sign about Hannah Jones's approach that she has just insisted on digging in on something that was almost kind of a throwaway line that I think she just thought of as sort of, you know, oh, something everybody knows, uh, you know, rather than rather than actually trying to back it up in the original essay about the idea that 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 a major cause of the revolution was defending slavery. And at the time, she fr- she framed this as well, the colonists were worried that Britain was going to try to get rid of the slave trade, which is really, really ridiculous argument because, in fact, the colonists, uh, a lot of them were complaining about the slave trade. Slave trade was unpopular in Virginia in particular um, for a variety of reasons, only some of which were humanitarian in nature. Um, 
but, you know, I mean, Thomas Jefferson in, you know, draft of the Declaration of Independence complained about the slave trade. I mean, literally, the Virginia Burgesses tried to, to close the state to the transatlantic slave trade, and the royal governor, Lord Dunmore, refused to let them. Uh, after they drove Dunmore out of office, uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, as governor of Virginia, signed a ban on the transatlantic slave trade, which was later repealed, you know, quite a few years later, uh, when the politics of slavery had shifted. Uh, although Jefferson ended up in in the White House uh, signing the national uh, permanent ban on the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, so what Hannah Jones is doing now in the documentary is is all this stuff about Dunmore's proclamation in late 1775, which is you know offering military service. Uh, and then emancipation to adult male slaves who would uh, essentially defect from, uh, you know, the plantations of uh, patriots, rebels. Um, and she's sort of trying to frame this as like Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, but of course it's not. Uh, it was only done in desperation after Dunmore had been driven effectively out of office uh, or at least out of control of the state. It was only extended to this, not to the slaves of those who remained loyal to the British, it was not extended to women or children. Uh, you know, the Continental Army actually enlisted slaves too, uh, not long after that. So it's, it's really a ridiculous parallel. And she goes on, I mean, I wrote this all up on the site. Um, she goes on, I didn't mention this in my piece, but you know, she goes on to, to do sort of this this sort of smear job of, of Abe Lincoln, too, in the episode, uh, where she talks about, you know, there's a famous meeting when Lincoln literally has the Emancipation Proclamation sitting in his desk drawer, but he hasn't issued it yet, in August of 1862. Uh, and he, you know, he invites these sort of black leaders in um, and basically talks up colonization, right? The idea of trying to get, um, you know, trying to pair emancipation with getting uh, freed black slaves to go, quote-unquote, back to Africa, if you will, um, which was an entirely reasonable thing if you were talking about people who had been, you know, captured, brought over here on the boat, you know, enslaved for 10 years, and you wanted to send them home. But here he's talking about people who had, you know, were like the grandchildren of someone, you know, people who knew nothing of Africa. Um now, there's a, there's a scholarly debate over how sincere a colonist Lincoln still was by the 1860s. I know Phil Magnus argues that he was. Uh, there's certainly a school of thought that Lincoln was just sort of um, touting colonization at this point for the purpose, of, for sort of for the audience of um, anti-black yeah, northerners reading, as a way of profiting the blow. I remember reading something about it, a, a meeting where he was suggesting this, where he made sure there was a reporter or two in, in the room. It was not... Yeah, that's yeah, the meeting. Not, that's not, meeting. As, not as best but moment. The, yeah, no, it's not. But at the same time, like, first of all, this is, you know, nearly the only thing she really mm -hmm. ever talks about with Lincoln. Um, but then she brings on this historian who says, oh, Lincoln is like insulting these people and trying to get them to leave the country, which is really not, you know, they did feel insulted by the suggestion that, that you know, that they should go home. Uh, that, that that America was not their home. But the idea that Lincoln was sort of like belittling and insulting these people to their faces is really a, a fairly gross mischaracterization mm -hmm. of how the meeting went down. So it's, you know, this sort of thing just goes on throughout her discussion of of history, but it's, it's really just shocking. 
that she's still digging in on this stuff and presenting this in this totally one-sided fashion. Uh, and it gets yeah, taken so just seriously. relying on her, you, you'd, you'd never know like the source of slavery, like where, where it came from. You just think, oh, okay, you know, Americans invented this institution <laughs> in 1619. And then you never really guess how it went away because <laughs> that, that's never really treated. And Dominic, part of the reason f- for that, I mean, I, I would say... I would say uh, this is an exaggeration, but it's, it's really it's really not, at least not uh, um, in, in this Hulu, seri- Hulu series. Slavery doesn't go away because it's, it's embedded in capitalism. So you still have this racial uh, caste system and this race-based exploitation of labor in our system today because sh- she and the experts she relies on, uh, including a historian who's pretty much flat out Marxist named Robin D.G. Kelly, who's featured extensively in the, the fourth episode covering capitalism in the series, you know, say, say that uh, slavery created uh, capitalism, which seems a, a completely insane um, claim, given you know ca- capitalism as as we as we know it, and modern capitalism you know arose in the Netherlands and, and Britain, in the United States, and it's it's the 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 most important feature of those societies was not slavery. Now, slavery is hugely important in the slave South of the United States. Obviously, the uh, cotton industry you know is part of the mall of industrial capitalism, that's true. But if you subtracted it, it's not as though capitalism itself would uh, collapse and no one would have thought of the ideas or practices <laughs> that created modern capitalism. In Marxism, uh, likening capitalism to slavery is a question of doctrine. I mean, that's what they believe. Uh, and so um, uh, any kind of research that they do on this is really just begging the question because they um, they, they already think that going in. Uh, if you look at sort of the non-Marxist scholarly consensus on, on this stuff, um, it's pretty clear that slavery is not the cause of, you know, the modern society. Uh, if you look at a recent book called How the World Became Rich by uh, Mark Koyama and Jared Rubin, two economic historians, uh, they look uh, as uh, in their chapter about the United States, they look at a lot of this and just sort of give a survey of the uh sort of uh, of the economic literature about this and it's 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 pretty clear that um, slavery is not the cause um, it's not even a primary cause of of American wealth and of course it's not a secret in American history that for many many years even well after slavery was abolished uh, the south was uh, the the poor region of the country relative to the north and so um, you know slavery holds holds people back that's that's why it's it's one of the reasons why it's so evil, and um, the uh, you know Adam Smith was was on this in in the 1700s, and this was this was before it was cool in England to be against slavery. He was um, uh, in 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 Wealth of Nations. He he famously talks about how uh, slavery does not make economic sense, and earlier than that, in 1759, in the Theory of Moral Sentiments, he has this uh, extended sort of tangent about infanticide, which seems kind of weird when you're reading it at first, but there's a good case to be made that it's actually a veiled reference to slavery, and he's likening it to that and saying that uh, that it was that it was uh, uh, morally wrong uh, at that time. And so, uh, you know, we've got the the sort of uh, founder of modern economics saying this. We've got the modern scholarly consensus outside of Marxism saying this. And uh, I don't think we should take it too seriously. 
uh, when it's coming from a uh, journalist from the New York Times, who, by the way, just wrote uh, a piece for the New York Times today for the first time since June of 2020. So uh, good, good for her. Um, it is a review of two. <laughs> don't, don't, don't seek this deal out from us. <laughs> it, is a, it is a review of two picture books. So that that is her that is her contribution today, um, for the first time in about uh, nearly two and a half years. So MBD, just the the cultural power <clears throat> of the sixteen nineteen project and this set of ideas, unfortunately, are something to behold. We saw another example of this a couple of weeks ago. People uh, fastened on this clip from a Disney series uh, called the the Proud. Family apparently a, a revival from um, so, several years ago, but these uh, woke woke kids are at some sort of school assembly and they're putting on a skit and the uh, their song that they're singing the the refrain of it is slaves built this country. Unfortunately, it's quite it's quite catchy. I can I can hum it I can hum it as we as we speak, uh, but. Um, uh, you know, th- th- it's not it's not Mickey Mouse or Bluey, but uh, it's that th- this stuff is is seeping into all co- corners of our culture. Yeah, and listen, I mean, this is um, it, the the powerful thing is there's a basically a, a kind of academia journalistic complex, and so the m- Marxist reinterpretations of history that take root in academia, then find journalist popularizers. And that's, that's basically what the mm-hmm. 1619 project is about. And, it, and, you know, these are old debates and I, I don't think they're actually very interesting ones. I think that, you know, people like Genovese or whatever, if, mm-hmm. you know, eminently refuted the idea that the South was the engine of capitalism in the United States. I mean, quite the opposite. It was like um, the arrangement of many, uh, areas of Prussia at the time, it was a modern attempt to resurrect a kind of feudalist system of land-based uh, aristocratic privilege uh, that was only tenuously connected to the modern economy, um, right? I mean, we associate ca- capitalism with uh, you know serious economic in- investment, urbanization, industrialism, all things that were basically absent from the antebellum South, um, you know, uh, the, the, the culture of slaveholding was anti-capitalistic. It was anti-bourgeois. Um, yeah, explicitly so. Ex- very explicitly so. Um, right. And that these were, um, you know, it's only connected to capitalism because there was profit for, the owner of the plantation and there was labor being enacted, but, um, it was not, uh, you know, free labor is part of the capitalist project. Um, even if also, you know, on the, on the opposite side, you can criticize capitalism for wage slavery, but that's a very different thing from Mm -hmm. legally prescribed slavery. Um, so anyway, this is, this is an old debate. I'm, I, I, I can't believe it's gotten as far as Hulu. I mean, I don't know why people producing television thought this would would be um, so eminently interesting. It's it's actually kind of played out at this point. So that's the segue to the exit question. Dan McLaughlin, the sixteen nineteen project is winning. Yes or no? Um, I think it is. It has made a lot of a lot more inroads and will make converts. Um, you know, among people who are 
highly predisposed to its arguments, but I continue to think that the 1619 Project was a giant mistake um, for the progressive cultural project, precisely because it is such a large, visible, um, you know, and, and poorly constructed uh, set of arguments. I think that progressives win the culture wars uh, best when they are flying under the radar, you know, when they are sort of slipping their stuff into school curriculums where people aren't noticing it, uh, you know, and I think we obviously we are now in a political moment when um, fights over education and over American history are very close to the center of what conservatives are thinking about these days and are mobilizing the public against. Uh, and I think the 1619 Project was actually one of the milestones along the way because it, it provided such an enormous public target for conservatives to rally against. Uh, a, uh, a subtle answer there, Dominic. Um, is 1619 uh, Project winning, yes or no? Uh, I say no. I think I, I agree with everything uh, that Dan just said, and I would just say that I am more optimistic about uh, Ron DeSantis's efforts uh, concerning education in Florida than I am pessimistic about the 1619 Project. And so I think uh, uh, I think you know to the extent that uh, conservative leaders and, and, and governors have understood uh, how this how this stuff can work and how to fight against it. Um, and I think they are getting that uh, more and more. And I think they will continue to in the next, say, five to 10 years. Um, I, I think that that will be uh, beneficial for uh, beating back some of these bad ideas. MBD, got an optimistic answer from Dominic there. Uh, 1619 Project is clearly winning. Um, I wrote... I think five years ago or six years ago, before it came out, I wrote a, a piece called "The Next Lost Cause," which was um, you can title about, one out of every three of your articles that with, with that with that title. Well, the next lost cause was the idea that like uh, the founding was going to become right. the next lost cause right. in in the imagination of of liberals because the case that they were making against the Confederates applied in spades to the founders. Um, and because it was the case against the Confederates was not against their treason. It was for their racism mm -hmm. uh, and for their endorsement of slavery. And I think as long as American politics is defined by controversies about racial representation and diversity, um, the 1619 Project is going to gain in strength, um, not just on the left, but even on the right. Uh, Anti-founder sentiment will continue to grow. Uh, I, until we are challenge, challenged from without and faced with, you know, political subordination by a, another power, and then we'll suddenly look back at the founders as men who championed our independence, our sovereignty, um, and values we hope to recover. Mm. So I, th I think there will be a, a revival of the founders in the future. Um, but the pressure for that is going to come from without, not within. Wow. All right. So we've had a good optimistic answer, a very good in-between answer from Dan, and a very good pessimistic answer from MBD. I also think the 1619 Project is winning. Uh, this, is, this is a radical uh, idea in, in every sense uh, of, of the word and has gained traction. Uh, probably more more traction than they could have imagined. Uh, my my worst case scenario is that it would just kind of instantly become orthodoxy. I don't think that has happened. Um, you know, I agree with with uh, uh, Dan and Dominic that the battle is joined, 
and that's very important. But I think it uh, for for now it is winning. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus Digital Subscription Service at NationalReview.com. If you appreciated the uh, a knowledge and acuity that Dan McLaughlin brought to this discussion, the sixteen nineteen project. Well, it hasn't just been on this podcast; it has been. Uh, on our website and in the pages of our magazine since literally uh, the the beginning. And um, Phil Magnus, uh, our friend, has been very good on this this topic. It's also written for us uh, a lot. But if you just want to know the uh, truth about the history of the revolution and why what uh, the 1619 Project is, is pushing is wrong, you, you could do much, much worse than just reading Dan McLaughlin. So that that is a hugely valuable thing I submit to you, and I humbly submit to you, you should pay for it, at least a little bit, not much, just a little bit, just pay a little bit. It's a, the first time rates aren't high at all, um, and uh, you know you get all sorts of other uh, benefits, no paywall, almost no no ads. But the the, the thing at the end of the day is really important is you're supporting your uh, our valuable. Journalism. So I'm sorry. I probably sounded a little NPR or PBS-ish in in this uh, particular NR Plus uh, appeal. But I hope you find it compelling and sign up today, tomorrow, or the next day and join tens of thousands of your fellow readers as a member of NR Plus. All right. So, dear listeners, if you do not like baseball, just skip the next 15 minutes. We'll have some good, good non-baseball content for you uh, near the end of the of this podcast. But we have four passionate uh, baseball fans. Uh, here, uh, three of whom are completely wrong about the direction MLB is taking to try to reform uh, how the, the, the game has gotten swollen and boring and overly long. And uh, I'm not sure who to pick first, who's most wrong, but I think maybe you're my candidate, Dominic. Explain why you're opposed to everything Major League Baseball is doing. Well... Major League Baseball announced that they are making permanent their uh, supposedly temporary extra innings rule, um, taking after the federal government, I guess, and that there's nothing more permanent than a temporary rule change. And uh, what they did (laughs) is to say that uh, extra innings now will start with a runner on second base. Uh, They tried this during the pandemic, and now they are making it permanent. Um... I don't like it because it's un-American, uh, and I like America. Uh, I think uh, it's a good thing to have uh, baseball be based on personal responsibility and merit, and that means that uh, it, up until this point, every base runner is accounted for. Uh, there's a set number of ways to reach base. Each way is based on something that the batter did to earn his spot there, and something that the defense or the pitcher did to allow him to reach. Uh, But now we have a situation where magical runners appear on second base with no cause. And we must write a lie into the scorebook in order to reflect that. (laughs) And in so doing, uh, we are creating a situation now where the scorekeeping accounting of Major League Baseball will no longer balance. Uh, We've been doing this for about 150 years and uh, everybody has been accounted for, but that will no longer be the case. Also that Rob Manfred can talk about how uh, baseball is too long and we need to make it shorter and provide as little baseball as possible to people who want to watch it. Uh, We've seen uh, the argument against the 
against pitchers hitting in the National League, and we said this is terrible. Nobody wants to watch a pitcher bunt. Sacrifice bunts are boring. But here we are. We're going to create a situation now in extra innings where, because we're in extra innings, it's, of course, a tie game. So one run wins the game. And we're going to put a runner on second base with nobody out automatically. So what are you going to do? You're going to bunt him over to third, because why wouldn't you? Now you've got a guy on third base with one out, and you can hit a sacrifice fly to win the game. That's right. We have, we have uh, in the name of creating more offense, and the name of uh, making sure the sacrifice bunts, which are so boring and just insufferable, don't happen, we're going to create a situation <laughs> where walk-off, where, uh, where, where teams can walk off win without ever registering a hit. So, so Dominic, let me, let me push you push you on um, what I think is the weakest part of your case, which is the the time of the games, which is which has demonstrably increased. Um, you know, it's not it's not as though this is the way baseball was played during the last 150 years. Is not. It's a totally an anomaly and aberration. But but let me let me get you on this hypothetical question. So you think it's more baseball if it takes four hours rather than two and a half hours? Would you also support if if there are further changes like more walking around pointlessly and the games were six hours? Would you welcome that as as more baseball? I would not. I would not. So, so, so why would so why would you? This is this is this is rich, rich. This is your your fallacy here, though, is that the the complaint that fans have been making is the pace of play, right? That there's more non-baseball in your baseball, right? There's longer commercial breaks. There's more standing around between pitches. Um, there's less of the good part. Right, but extra inning yes. baseball is the good yep. part. It's what the whole buildup is for, uh, and so you know what you're saying here is okay. We have failed for the most part in removing the non-baseball from the baseball game. So instead, we're going to remove the baseball, and in fact, the best part of well, the no, baseball. No, well, sorry. So, so, so my, my my point with Dominic, sorry, I didn't I didn't make it clear. I, I think pitch clock is the most important reform. I like extra innings. The, uh, the ghost runner, because I'm a Yankee fan, by the time it's 10.30 and we're getting to extra innings, I've watched them strike out, you know, 15 times, walk 10 times, and it's late. And I would, I would not want, you know, a postseason NHL game decided on three and three overtime play. I enjoy the three and three overtime play. And when it's when five minutes are over and there's still not a decision, I enjoy the shootout. It's impure, but it's entertaining. Same thing, college football, uh, 20, starting the 25-yard line in overtime, total artificial con uh, construct, a lot of fun. So I think it's okay for baseball to be more entertaining rather than less. And, and the trend the last 10 or 15 years has been less across the board. And, you know, to, to extend Dominic's uh, analogy here, you know, if you're, you remember years back, uh, Ann Richards complained that uh, George H.W. Bush, in her words, had been born on third base and thought he hit a triple. Uh, future generations will <laughs> not even understand that kind of metaphor. They'll just think being born on second base is natural. <laughs> well, MBD, I, I tried to troll you when we were discussing this a year or two ago, that actually my ideal format would be you get the runner on second uh, in the 10th inning, and then if you're, you're still tied, then in the, the 11th, you get first and second, and then what? the 12th, they just start loaded. <laughs> Wait, really? You think that? <laughs> okay. Uh, I was going to say, no. like, we have no basis That's a troll. That's a troll. <laughs> um... You know, I, I I totally agree with everything Dominic said against the 
the extra runner in extra innings. I think that is ridiculous. And there's no limiting principle on this, by the way, and which is exactly why your first and second is possible or why starting someone on third is just as possible uh, in the future if Rob Manfred just decrees it so. Um, I am willing to experiment with the pitch clock. I, I, I've, you know, I, I went to a couple minor league games where it was used and I did appreciate the crisper play. Um, and I felt it was, I didn't feel it particularly advantaged one side or the other. Um, but I am very skeptical of the new illegal defense stuff. I hated illegal defense in the NBA, in the 1990s, mm-hmm. there was all sorts of strange legal defense rules about people in the key for more than three or four seconds um, that made things impossible for everyone. But um, the Chicago Bulls and the Utah Jazz, the only two really well coached teams of the era, um, I don't, I don't like, I, I don't like this illegal positioning of the defense uh, in in baseball either. I mean, you're you're in the field. The field is the field, and fielders should be able to run around the field um, and try to go to the best position to to get the out. I mean, I, I'm a traditionalist on this. I support the shift for Ted Williams, but for for no one else. So, Dan McLaughlin, exit question to you: The ghost runner will be abandoned as an embarrassing innovation that should be trashed uh, within a couple of years, or is here to stay. Um, I mean, I think that depends on who the next commissioner is uh, and whether they share Manfred's outlook on the world, which sadly is probably the case. Um, you know, and, 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 and I do think that, that some of these things, some of these rule changes, they're not thinking of the incentive structure, right? If you, ha- if you ban the shift, you eliminate the incentive to develop players who do anything other than, you know, swing away to pull. Well, where, and, where, are those, where are those players now? Oh, you what, can, you can, do, you can develop, you can develop them. All it takes is for a few successes. And, and with the ghost runner too, you know, one of the great complaints about the pace of play is it's too many pitching changes. Right. Um, and now what you're doing by trying to shorten, trying to eliminate long extra inning games, you're eliminating one of the big downsides of burning out your whole bullpen in the sixth and seventh inning. So I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think as long as the game is run by people with the same mindset, we're going to see these continual tinkers that are moving away from the game as it, as it ought to be played and as the fans want it to be played. Dominic, here to stay or will be abandoned? Well, uh, I agree with Dan, uh, and by same mindset, he means the mindset of people who don't really like watching baseball. Um, I think uh, Rob Manfred is is in that camp, and as long as he's in charge, this stuff is sticking around. I think uh, Dan's point earlier about how extra innings are the best part of baseball is absolutely true as well. Um, you know, some of my top memories uh, of being a Brewers fan, for example, are you know Ryan Braun's walk off hit to win in the 18th inning. Uh, in, in 2019, towards the end of his his uh, long and illustrious Brewers career, um, did that in a game where they had the uh, sausage race three times because it's usually in the sixth inning. And so they did it uh, in the in the 12th and in the 18th again. Um, and then you've got Martin Maldonado, who uh, at the time was the Brewers backup catcher, who uh, caught all 17 innings of a game and then walked it off with a home run in the 17th. 
just incredible stuff. And uh, Rob Manfred wants to make sure that those memories are not created for any future <laughs> children out there who just want to watch some exciting extra innings well, baseball. So most of them are not going to be up for the ninth inning, let alone the the eighteenth. MBD in, innovation that will be abandoned or here to stay. Uh, it must be abandoned. Uh, not abandoning it is to uh, surrender to the to the Manfred drift, and the Manfred drift uh, inevitably ends with MLB proposing a final merger with the NFL, and all baseball teams will be converted into bad NFL teams. <laughs> scoring and action and revenue. <laughs> so I, I I don't know, but I suspect it's here to stay because I believe there's a lot of false consciousness and people not wanting in, to admit they actually enjoy it. I heard I'm the only one I know who supports this this change, except for there wasn't one announcer I was Good. watching some game. <laughs> Um, this, the, uh, this past season is like, you know what? I, I know. Oh yeah. It's uh, gosh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so untraditional, but I, I like it. I like it. And for me, some of the most memorable moaning, uh, moments of the, of the last season where someone's texting me, you know, at 1045, it's like, that was cool. That comeback was amazing. This was, you know, I can't believe what just happened. And it was during the, the extra innings. Uh, with the Ghost Runner, it's okay to be entertained by sports, and it's okay for Major League Baseball. The extra inning is not the main thing. The pitch clock is to to try to get the ridiculous time of play, at least down some, 20 minutes or whatever it's been in the minor leagues. As MBD says, no one's going to miss that that 20 minutes that are that are um, squeezed out. So, But we will see. Um, in the meantime, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, I promised when we were done with our baseball discussion, we'd have some non-baseball topics. But actually, what you've been focused on this week is pitchers and catchers reporting to Florida and Arizona. Yes. Uh, over the winter, you know, my kids are at an age, and my son would occasionally ask over the winter, are the Mets on tonight? And they were not. But soon they will be because pitchers and catchers have reported. And I don't know, as a Mets fan in 2022, it's kind of exciting to have the top half of the – 2014 Tigers in your starting rotation. We'll see how that works out uh, with Verlander and Scherzer teamed up once again. Um, but I don't know, 60 degree weather in February and pitchers reporting in Florida. It's a bright day. So Dan, you just watched a Norwegian war film. Yes. And war movies uh, like, I guess, like uh, detective shows are one of the things that does tend to translate pretty well through, you know, when you have dubbing or subtitles. Um, and I watched on, uh, on Netflix uh, a film about the Battle of Narvik uh, in 1940, which is the uh, really only defeat that Hitler suffered, uh, you know, during that first year of the war, um, I guess, or at least it, it, up until Dunkirk. Um, and it was just a really well done movie that, you know, examined sort of the, the situation of the Norwegians uh, and the various allies who came to their aid trying to uh, make their way through German occupation uh, and how to deal with uh, the German occupiers as well as how to fight them. Um, and uh, so I, I just, it, it was well done. It was well shot, uh, well acted. And, you know, I think if you if you like World War Two movies, uh, you know, you probably will enjoy this one. So, Dominic, you have a, uh, a nice family event, a surprise family event coming up in Wisconsin here. That's right, Rich. I'm going back uh, to see my sister's 
uh, final college dance performance. So she is, uh, she'll be graduating soon. And so uh, going up to surprise her, I haven't told her I'm coming yet. And there is no chance in the world that she's going to listen to this podcast before the performance happens. So I'm perfectly safe. She'll, uh, she'll never, she'll never get through the baseball discussion. That's right. That's right. So it'll be fun. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago, my disappointment, I thought I had secured a, uh, a classic vintage Houston Oilers a mini helmet signed by the great Billy White Shoes Johnson, but it turned out, uh, after all, it was out of stock. But uh, my disappointment is at least lessened a little bit uh, because I have secured, it's within reach here, a signed uh, Vince Young photo from his uh, famous uh, tiptoe into the end zone, touchdown right near the end of the classic Rose Bowl um, matchup with uh, USC, one of the uh, greatest college football games ever played as far as I'm concerned. It's that time of the podcast. Now for our editor's picks, MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Alexander Rakin's Canada's Ministry of Death from, I think, the latest issue of the magazine, um, just an astonishing account of how Justin Trudeau has created the most permissive euthanasia program on earth. Dan McLaughlin, what's your pick? Maybe not the most original for people who have just sat through this, uh, podcast, but, uh, Michael's piece generation X takes on the gerontocracy, uh, talking about Nikki Haley and the boomers and gen X, um, I just really enjoyed the piece and, uh, it's, it's got some great lines at the end. Dominic, your pick. My pick is, uh, John McCormick's piece, uh, are Biden and Trump too old to be president in which he goes around and asks politicians if Biden and Trump are too old to be president and watches them dance around, uh, trying to avoid saying yes, which is the obvious truth. So my pick is Dominic's piece that was posted today. We're recording Thursday here on the Ohio train derailment. This is a story you, you may you know may kind of be vaguely in your field of vision and you don't know quite what to make of it. I highly recommend you read every word of Dominic's authoritative piece. So that's it. For us, you've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dominic. Thanks to MBD. Thanks to the Bonson Group. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.